from these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, we've been saying that obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. Now, out of that, or, or I should say flowing from that definition, I went on to try to paint a picture of the unity that the Bible sets forth for the people of God in a church. With this definition, unity I'm defining as the corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony which flows from spiritual life, scriptural conviction, and mutual love. And we spent two weeks opening up that definition, so hopefully we're all a little more clear on what this unity is. As I've said... I can say that we ought to pursue unity, but if I don't tell you what unity is, then we might all run in different directions. That wouldn't be unifying at all. So the way that we can unify around unity is to have a commonly held definition or a picture. And that's what it will look like. It will look like the whole church in the process of pursuing doctrine, doctrinal and practical harmony. It does not look like absolute uniformity in all things. Rather, it is an ongoing quest for doctrinal conviction and practical living that is shaped by the Bible. And it will require of all of us humility and love where acceptable differences occur. There are differences, disagreements among the people of God that we would say... That's not acceptable. We need to bring someone over to see the truth. But there are differences of opinion or preferences that, that would fall into the category of acceptable. It's okay for you to hold that view and we can still worship together and, and serve the Lord together in, in the local church. But there has to be humility and love with regard to those differences. And that will flow naturally where uh, the people have been born of the Spirit. They're convic convicted and convinced by the Word of God and growing in love. As an aside, this just came to me, there are often times when we will say that we have a conviction, but it's very difficult for us to hold that conviction with an attitude of humility and love toward others, or uh, we, maybe we don't sense an attitude of humility and love from others based on our conviction, and it's all imaginary, and it bothers us because... We're really not convinced and convicted by the Scriptures. Once you become settled on a matter in your heart by the Word of God on an issue, your conscience is clear on the issue, you're not constantly going to be pushed back and forth, well, I think so-and-so is, is, is judging me based on my conviction. I just don't feel like I have the freedom to hold this or that. Well, that might be because you have not done the personal work of coming to the conviction for yourself. Because when you do that, when you search the Word of God and come to a conviction on a matter that, uh, again, is within the bounds of orthodoxy, uh, when you come to that and God has convinced you and convicted you, the matter is settled. It's okay if other people disagree with me. Um, but anyway, that, that's what we're after. Humility and love where, where there are acceptable differences. That's the picture. It's not lockstep sameness. We don't, we're not all going to go get the same haircut and start wearing the same outfit. 
Um, nor is it, the other extreme would just be an unbridled free-for-all. We don't care what you believe, we don't care what you do, as long as you make some sort of general profession about Christianity or God or Christ, we can all come together. No, it's, it's not that. Rather, it's doctrinal and practical harmony, agreement in what we would say are the non-negotiable objective truths of Scripture. There are some of those where it's not acceptable to disagree. That puts you outside of the bounds of Christianity. There must be agreement on those, but there's also, there should be a conformity to clear moral imperatives. It's not acceptable for you to say, well, I think that it's okay to habitually lie to people. That's, that's not an acceptable difference of opinion because that is a, a clearly stated moral principle in God's Word. So there are those. And I, I don't want anybody to think I'm blurring those lines to, to cover every area of non-negotiable objective truth or clearly defined moral imperatives. Well, that's, that's, the, that's all preaching for all of life in, in every circumstance. That's what you're doing is going through the Word of God and, and pulling those things out. We don't have the time to do that here, but I do want to be clear that there are those. And there will be a genuine concerted effort to walk together in this pursuit. We're all of the understanding that we are going to work together in this. That's the harmony. That's the picture. Now I want to move from the picture of this unity. We're changing gears, but we're still climbing the same hill. The picture of unity now to the priority of this unity the priority of unity. I've said that obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. Well, in the phrase, must be among our primary and consistent labors, contained within that phrase, there is the the suggestion of a priority. If something must be among your primary and consistent labors, what I'm saying is this is not an option. It has to be among our priorities. If we want to be within the bounds of God's prescribed will and His Word, this must be something that characterizes us. It must be among our labors. It's not the only thing that we ever consider, but it is something that we we are after. The word primary means that it's going to be at the top of our priorities. It must be at the top of our priorities. And to say that it must be a primary and consistent labor means not only does it have to be at the top of our priorities, but it has to stay at the top. It's not something that we we swing up to, achieve unity, and then move on with the rest of life as usual or go back to whatever disagreements um, we we might have and say, well, we had unity that one time or we achieved it to think of uh, most recently the discussions that we've had about the Lord's Supper. It wouldn't be be right for us to, to, to swing up to an agreement with regard to the the table of the Lord and then say, there we had unity, now let's stop working so hard and let's just ignore the concept altogether, that was too much work or whatever. No, we, we have to continue trekking. It must be among our primary and consistent labors. It is a priority. Now that might sound like a bold claim for me to say that it is a priority. Um, you might say, well... I believe that upholding the truth of God's Word and the gospel, that's a priority. Uh, Maintaining the pure worship of God in His church, that's a priority. Uh, Evangelism and discipleship, that's a priority for sure. But unity, 
I think it might be a stretch to say that that is up there with in, at the level of priority. Might sound like a bold claim. Well, let me ask you a question, and this I think will be helpful just broadly when it comes to the subject of hermeneutics or how we, how we study and interpret the Bible. How would you determine whether a topic is of primary importance? We, we, I think we, we all have in our minds this pyramid of, of things that are primary, secondary, tertiary. We, we read the Bible. We kind of decide what might be important, what might not be important. How do you decide what goes where? When studying God's Word, how do you know which things to put at the top of the list of priorities and how do you know which to put at the bottom? Or better yet, I think this is probably the, the real crux of the matter, how might we determine the emphasis that the Spirit of God has put on a particular subject in the Scriptures? I think if we, if we would come to the conclusion that the Spirit of God has made it a priority, then we would say, therefore it must be a priority for me. So then to argue that unity... That's not really a priority. What we're kind of saying is, I just don't think that God the Holy Spirit has given it that place in the Scriptures. And we definitely don't want to be unbalanced. We don't want to give so much of a priority to a thing that, that, that God really hasn't made all that significant. So how would you establish your priorities? Or how might the Holy Spirit show what He considers to be a priority? I'll give you some, some options. The first one might be just the sheer number of references. Basically, just start counting references to that subject and the more references you have, well, the greater significance you could say the Spirit has placed on that subject. That's one way. In Albert Martin's book, The Forgotten Fear, he begins chapter 1 with addressing what he calls the predominance of the fear of God in biblical thought. And he says, quote, One does not need much learning to reach the conclusion that the fear of God is indeed a dominant theme in the Bible. And then he goes on to give the number count of explicit and implicit references to the doctrine of the fear of God. And the argument is, look, it's addressed so many times, therefore it must be significant. And I think that is in many cases, a good way to study the Bible. How many times is this thing brought up? Um, we can determine how significant it might be. That's not the only thing, but that, that might be one way that you could consider or, or uh, determine how the Spirit has given significance to a topic. The second one would be the placement of references in the context of the Bible, wherever they're found. You would ask, what position does the, this reference to this subject occupy in its contextual surroundings? Some examples of this might be the very first in a list of topics might show that that topic is of chief importance. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc., you read the commentators, they're all going to say love starts out the list because love is of preeminent importance. Love carries all of these others along with it. Or the very last in a series might be the most significant. The first of the Ten Commandments sets the stage for them all. If you're keeping the first of the Ten Commandments, you will keep the rest of them. If you're breaking any of the other nine, it's actually because you're not keeping the first one. 
the first set out, sets out the pattern for them all. It, it occupies that place in the context. The opposite of that would be the dying words like a man or of a man like Jacob. The last thing he ever said is probably the most important thing that he ever said as he blesses his sons and foretells and prophesies of what, would, what was to come. What place does it occupy in its context? The third criteria we might consider would be the language that's used in the reference. What level of urgency is conveyed as we read it? Just the words on the page, is there any urgency behind the thing mentioned? For example, let me give you two statements from the Apostle Paul. I'll, I'll read them with the same level of, of personal emphasis and see if you can tell which one occupies the place of emphasis in Paul's mind. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Bodily training is of some value. Now, if you read those statements and I asked you, in the Apostle Paul's mind, which bears the weight of significance? The salvation of his Jewish kinsmen or bodily exercise? You'd say, I think to the Apostle Paul, and he, and he actually lived this out, to the Apostle Paul, the salvation of his kinsmen was far more important than his physical health. That's not to say physical health is completely insignificant. Bodily training is of some value. But you can read the words and you can say, there are other things that are far more important. If, if I continue to read, godliness is of value in every way. There's a significance placed in the language. Paul's language under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit gives us or conveys a greater priority on one thing versus the other. So that's one criteria that we could use. And the fourth one is what I'm calling the denunciation of alternatives. Denunciation of alternatives. How severely is the alternate or the opposite treated or addressed in Scripture? For example, there are certain sexual sins that are only mentioned once in Scripture. Now, if we were just using number one, the number of references, we would say, well, that's not important at all. God is really not concerned about that matter. But in the one reference, it's treated with the, the, uh, the, the, the punishment is death. That lets me know the God's priority or emphasis that he places on sexual purity, marital faithfulness. What does God think about sexual purity? Well, the opposite is treated with the death penalty. That lets me know this is significant. How does God feel about the observance of the Sabbath day? Well, breaking of the Sabbath was treated with the death penalty. Therefore, that shows me the significance that's placed on this, this thing in, in the mind of God. An otherwise placid ox gores someone to death. No penalty. The owner is not liable. If that ox otherwise had been fine, never lashed out like this again or before, completely um, strange, the owner's not liable. Kill the ox, eat it up, move on your way. But if a daughter was found to be promiscuous 
while living in her father's house, she's brought to his doorstep and stoned to death. Which shows there is some liability and obligation laid at the feet of her father for what happened when she was living in his household. That helps us to see again, what does God think about sexual purity and marital faithfulness? Well, look at how the opposite of it is treated, the denunciation of alternatives. So you could count the number of references, consider the placement of those references, read the language, the denunciation of alternatives. All four of these criteria can be used to determine just how significant a biblical theme is. And that's equally true for the subject of unity amongst the people of God in the local church. And so what I want to do in trying to show you the priority of unity is to use those four criteria as headings and just survey the Scriptures using those as our headings. And I think that you'll see by the end that, that it's not a stretch to say this ought to be a priority. It is a priority. As a matter of fact, barring some of Pastor Martin's language in, in The Forgotten Fear, I think that by the end we should say, it's amazing then that a theme so dominant in the Bible can either be greatly overlooked or carelessly treated. I trust after we grasp something of the predominance of this theme that you will not be content with a mere cursory knowledge or passing acquaintance with the subject of church unity. One simply cannot love the God and truths of the Bible and still remain indifferent to a subject which is so prominent throughout the Scripture. That's what he was, he was referring to, the fear of God. Now we're talking about unity in the church. But I think that's what, what, what you come to conclude. It's, it's worthy of our consideration. So we have these four criteria. The number of references, the placement of those references, the language used in the references, and the, the denunciation of alternatives. Now clearly, in all of these, there's going to be some overlap. I've tried to divide them up in such a way that, that the, the distinctive criteria of each will be shown as we go through it. None of them really should be expected to bear the full weight of the significance by itself, although... As we've already seen, one mention is enough. That is sufficient, but um, I think the, the cumulative uh, report will be far weightier. Now the number of references, I'm going to save that till last because the other three will kind of fill in that. So we'll begin today looking at the placement of references to unity within the context of Scripture. I have four passages that I want to use. There are, there are more. I've chosen four. And today we're going to look at two. The general line of argument goes like this. If I take note of the context of this reference to unity amongst the saints, if I just consider the fact that this was mentioned here, I will conclude at the very least it's important. It's an important theme. And the first text that I want to look at this morning is John chapter 17. So if you'll turn with me there, John 17. And I want to read to you verses 20 to 23. 20 to 23. 
We know that our Lord is here praying to His Father. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in Me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent Me, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The more that I read this prayer and contemplate what's actually happening in this chapter, the less qualified I feel to make a single comment. Uh, Men have said that Romans chapter 8 is probably the most comforting chapter in all of Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If that's the case, if Romans 8 is the most comforting chapter, chapter of Scripture for the Christian, I would argue this prayer is the only reason Romans chapter 8 is applicable. The the only reason Romans 8 will remain true until the end of time is because of this prayer. It is very, very important, very significant. Now, if we start with the broadest context of the prayer within John's gospel, we're looking at or reading of the unfolding of the final hours of Christ's earthly ministry. If you read on into chapter 18, He will be arrested and taken to trial, and we know what happens from there. John 17 is, is the final act of our Lord before His agony in Gethsemane, His arrest, His trial, His crucifixion. Now, it's easy to get hung up on those details, the specific chronological details in John's gospel without realizing the fullness of of the scene here. What's actually happening? The conclusion of Christ's earthly ministry has far greater attachments really to all of history than even it has right here in its individual, individual context. This is the divine Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity the eternal Word of the living God, bringing to a conclusion the entirety of His work, which will destroy the works of the devil, bring in everlasting righteousness, and set the end of the ages into motion. That's what's happening in in, in Christ's ministry as His ministry is coming to a, a close. The eternal Son assumed the nature of a man, had lived as a man for 33 years without a single hint or stain of sin. He's about to go to the cross and offer up what is referred to as a sweet-smelling savor, a sacrifice of Himself to His Father on our behalf for our sins that we might be saved. And and on the cross, He actually verbalizes the the great reality of all of this when He says, It is finished. 
all of the work, all of the, the, the reason for human history is finished. That's what he's saying. Everything, the, the reason we exist, the reason there is creation, the reason there is time, the reason there, there is the human race, all of it sums up and finds its culmination, its reason in the crucifixion. It's finished. That's what he's saying. Everything after that, we, we say, well, we've lived a long time since then. Yeah, it, it all flows from there. We're, we're, we're now moving towards consummation. We are in the last days, according to the Scriptures. We, we've already turned, turned the, the hill to the last days. And he prays here. In verse 4 of this prayer, he said to his father, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I glorified you. Just think about this. If we think about what it means to glorify. All of the untold and infinite excellencies of God brought to their clearest and most beautiful display in the life of Jesus Christ. That's how I would would explain the Father glorified. Everything perfect about God shown to us, set before our eyes in the life of Jesus Christ. God's majesty extolled, displayed, advertised, and made known to creation as altogether lovely. The Father glorified in the life of Christ. But how was the Father glorified? How is it that the man Jesus parades all that makes God beautiful across the scene of history? How is it that He glorified His Father? The answer is He accomplished the work that was given Him to do. He accomplished the work. He says at the cross, it's finished. All of these realities, all that these realities entail is coming to its great and grand finale. But before the final act, which is the lifting up of Christ on the cross, He meets with His disciples. That's what's happening here. He meets with His disciples. Now, moving a little bit closer, this is what we call the upper room discourse. It is the final extended communication that we have between Christ and His closest friends. These are the concluding remarks to His time with these men who had left everything that they'd ever known and followed Him for three and a half years. In this discourse, what we might call a private sermon, our gracious Lord is preparing these men for what it would be like to continue now without Him. He was about to leave. He's getting them ready for His absence. He's loving them to the end in such a way that would propel propel them into lives of ministry and service and even death after He's gone. And I'm personally persuaded that the supreme emphasis of the Upper Room Discourse is the sending of the Holy Spirit to be their helper. For that Spirit who was with them and would be in them to come and to be with them because that Spirit is the Spirit of this Jesus So this is the upper room discourse. He's meeting with his disciples. 
And then as we get to chapter 17, we're entering into what has become, has come to be known as the high priestly prayer of our Lord. If being in that upper room, we might imagine, if being in that upper room was to enter into the holy place with Christ, then the high priestly prayer would be considered entering into the holy of holies. There's a book that has been written on the, the entire upper room discourse, and the name of it is The Inner Sanctuary. In this chapter, we get a front row seat and are allowed to hear the Son pray to the Father. This is how Christ is loving them. He lets them hear Him pray. This is how Christ loves us. He lets us hear Him pray. When you hear somebody pray for you, it, it's, it means something. It's significant. Some of you men, I know the things that are happening in, in your personal lives. But then to come into the congregation and to hear you pray for me, it, it, it makes me want to, to almost snatch the words out of your mouth to say, no, don't pray for me. You've got so many other things. I'm not worthy to be prayed for when, when you have your own things. But you have prayed. How, how, how wonderful is that to hear? Here, the disciples get to listen to Christ pray for them. When we read this, we get to hear Christ pray for us. The most loving thing He could ever do, other than His dying, is to let us hear His prayer. But the prayer here is not simply the Son praying to the Father, but it is the prayer of the mediator, the high priest of our confession, going before the Father, to make intercession for us. Thomas Manton, he's done quite a, a lot of work on this. He says of this prayer, quote, He would now open to us the bottom of His heart and give us a copy of His continual intercession. Now I've thought, I've wondered if that was true. I didn't read this until this week, but I've often wondered if this might be the case. If, if this might be something like a transcript of the present, right now, ongoing intercession of Christ Himself. Or if we might say, this intercession once being offered up in His, in his earthly ministry, now His bodily presence in the heavens causes this prayer to be placarded in the heavenly place before the eyes and ears of His Father until the end of time. Manton adds, quote, This prayer is a standing monument of Christ's affection to the church. It did not pass away with the external sound. It retaineth a perpetual efficacy. The virtue remaineth, though the words be over. It's like he, he sent this prayer up and they said, We've received the high priest's prayer. Staple it on the walls of heaven. And now He stands there bodily. And this prayer stands with Him as an intercession for us. Manton calls this prayer Christ's dying blaze. In this prayer, Christ prays for Himself, verses 1 through 5. His 11 remaining disciples, verses 6 through 19. And those who would believe in them or believe in Him after the, the disciples, that is all believers, in verses 20 to 24. And then He concludes the prayer in 25 and 26. 
So as we move into the, the closest context of what we're, what we're reading here, in verses 20 to 24, our great high priest is putting forth his dying blaze, to use Manton's phrase, his dying blaze on behalf of all believers from the apostles onward. Now, he says in, in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those. So really, everything that had been prayed up until that point, he, sa- he, he says, I'm going to bring that over and apply it to all of those who would believe in, in me after you. So, so we, we certainly get more of the prayer than just these verses, but, but that's, who, that's who he's praying for. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Christ is praying for us. When you read this prayer... Maybe sometime this week, read this prayer and and read through it as if you were listening to Christ standing right now in the heavenlies, having offered His blood in the heavenly holy place for us and speaking the words of this prayer into the ear of His Father. This very moment. Read it that way. Now, what does He pray for? Well, He prays for the unity of His people. Notice the language, verse 21. That they may all be one. Verse 22. That they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23. That they may become perfectly one. Now the the scope of what He's saying here is beyond me, period. But beyond our study and the time, if we, if we are going to deal honestly with the passage, I want to be clear that the unity or the oneness that Christ is praying for here is deeper and wider than what we're talking about in our study. I don't want to say right here all that Christ has in mind is that, that the people in, in a local church have doctrinal and practical harmony. I think it's, I know that it is more than that, deeper and wider than that. It encompasses our theme because it is much larger than our theme. The Lord Jesus is praying ultimately for the spiritual union that all believers will have with one another through the indwelling Holy Spirit and their union with Him. And I I think that's pretty uh, standard interpretation of what He's asking for here. When you think of phrases like that they may be one even as we are one, it's got to be more than just... I'm praying that they get along on Sundays. It's more than that. It's not less than that. It's far greater. But again, that isn't to say it has nothing to do with the unity that we're talking about, which exists within a local church. Actually, the opposite is true. It does apply to us. It is precisely because it's dealing with the foundation of our unity, our union with Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit, precisely because that's what he's praying for, we would say it must apply to our union with each other in the local church. Precisely because he is addressing a much more broad unity, then by extension and application, this unity must be even more necessary in a particular congregation. In other words, if we wanted to argue from the greater to the lesser, if if what he's praying for is that the entire body of all of the saints of God be one, well then how much more would that apply to the people who are gathered together in one place who are living shoulder to shoulder with one another? I would say it's, it's all the more. 
arguing from that, that broader body to the, the more local body, or if we wanted to argue from the, the lesser to the greater in terms of the unity, if we would expect the unity of the faith among all saints as the answer to Christ's prayer, then how much more would we expect the unity to exist amongst those that providence has placed together in a local church as an answer to the same prayer? A a more intensified unity than even we have with all believers everywhere simply because providence has placed us together in the same place. So how does the placement of this reference to unity in its context, show the significance of the matter. Well, I would suggest we probably can't find a more uh, solemn or grave or sacred circumstance in the entire Bible. If Sometimes you wonder if maybe you shouldn't take your, your shoes off to read this chapter of Scripture. That, I mean, that's what we're dealing with here. This is a, a very... Uh, serious and sacred place. What situation in the life of Christ as it pertains to His disciples and His church, other than the actual end time giving of His life for them, what situation could be more pregnant with the very things that burned in Christ's heart? The fact that this is Christ speaking, I don't, I don't like to do you know, red letter, black letter... It's all God's Word. I don't don't like to do that, but the fact that Christ is speaking, the fact that this is the Word of God makes it of infinite value, number one, right out of the gate. But that's only amplified by the fact that this is Christ praying. He's pouring out His heart to His Father. And we add to that, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and by, by providence, Of all of the prayers that Christ prayed, this is the only one that we have in such a full form. The Holy Spirit has preserved it for us that we would have it in in this way. This is the dying prayer of a dying Savior pleading for the souls of His people. Manton again, quote, Christ's love was hottest and strongest in the close of his life, and here you have the eruption and flame of it. Because we're so we're so lax in prayer, in what prayer is, it's hard for us to understand what it is that the Christ is doing here. Because we can offer prayers without much heart. Christ can't do that. Christ can't offer a prayer without much heart. Christ can only offer prayers with all of His heart, erupting, pouring forth. That's what this is. In this prayer, as He enters into intercession for us, He prays and still prays that we be one. This prayer of oneness shows us the importance of the church and the Holy Spirit in Christ's care for His people. Remember, He he spoke of the Comforter, the Helper, the Holy Spirit... He prays for that unity which only the Spirit can give. We know that that unity now, it manifests itself for us in the establishment and the gathering of local churches around the world. That's what it looks like when when the people of God are one. A manifestation of that is we get together as providence allows and puts us in the same place. So if if we put this big picture together, 
Our Lord prays concerning the ongoing well-being of His people in the world. And the petition reveals to us that the gift of the Holy Spirit and the community of the saints, that is the church, are central to His grand design. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to make you one. What happens in the book of Acts? That's our next passage. What does it look like when this happens? What does, it ha- what does it look like when the Spirit is given and the unity comes? We get together. We're unified. That's what happens. It's central. Unity among the saints is something that Christ sought after for our well-being. He's praying for what He knew we would need. So to obtain and maintain unity, well, that's for the benefit of our own souls. That's what Christ prayed for. It means... But this is Christ's means of encouragement and help for us. John Calvin says, he again lays down the end of our happiness as consisting in unity. Now, again, you you might say, I think you're to, to call this a priority, you might be going a little far. Well, that's fine. You stand over there. I'm going to hang out over here with Thomas Manton and John Calvin and Matthew Henry and... Going down the line, I'll be over here with these guys and we'll be, we'll be realizing at least Christ prayed for His people to be unified. This was central to His heart for His people. We also know that the Spirit-filled church was to be the very mission of Christ on the earth, the means by which a people from every nation would be gathered into His fold. And if that's going to happen, then those churches must have the unity that He's praying for here. Churches that are splintered and fragmented by schisms and strife and dissension are not the awful weapon in Christ's hand that they could be if they would obtain and maintain unity and make that a priority. If they were of the same mind and of the same judgment, they would become an awful weapon in His hands. This prayer is like the hinge upon which redemption accomplished is made, redemption applied to us and to the nations. And at the center of this is unity. And the unity is formed by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's praying for. Last quote from Manton. Christ that left unity as a charge in his last sermons. Love one another even as I have loved you, you are to love one another. He left unity as a charge in his last sermons. He would leave it as a legacy in His last prayers. Surely then you can see from this reference that doctrinal and practical harmony among the people of God is at least worthy of serious thought. At the very least. Now the second passage that I want to look at, and I'm I'm looking at the clock... um, Let's move to application and we'll look at the other passage next Lord's Day. I don't want to clog all of that with another one. Um, There are times when, and I think there are passages like that, that when you look at them and you consider them, that it could be dangerous to go on. Uh, And I don't want to do that. So... Number one, examine your own emphasis. 
up until this point. Do you think that your personal conviction on this matter of unity is equal to that of the Holy Spirit? Before you came in here today, would you say, yeah, I feel like me and the Spirit, we were right on the same level. We were both thinking the same, acting the same as far as unity. Or would you say, you know what, when I consider that the context in which that was mentioned, I realize Christ probably had a higher view than I have had until this point. Do you believe this issue bears upon your own heart and practice with the weight that the Spirit of God has given to it? Again, I think that our goal should always be advancing closer and closer to the mind of God with regard to these things. Examine yourself. Is this matter as important to you as it is to God? Now you might say, Honestly, what really matters to me when it comes to a church, what really matters to me is that I can come to a place where I can... I know that I will passively receive the proclamation of, of sound doctrine put forth in, in accordance with historically, uh, confessionally formulated ways. And that's all I'm, I'm really concerned about. That interpersonal relationships with other people, that's not really at the top of my priorities. I just want to go to a place where I can hear the truth. You hear a lot of people say that. I just want to go somewhere where I can hear the truth. The Apostle Paul said to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. Now, put in the context of the pastoral epistles, what he's saying is the, the end goal of a pastor's commission is that the people of God increase in faith which will work itself out in love for one another and love for God. So if you say, well, my main concern is sound doctrine. That's all I'm really concerned about is I just want to hear the truth. Well, sound doctrine itself has an aim. It has an outworking which will show that it has actually been received and taken root in, the, in a heart filled by the Spirit of God. And that's love flowing from a pure heart. To say, or to have this attitude, my chief concern is just sound doctrine. That's like saying, well, my chief concern is a high-quality rifle. I can't hit the target. I don't have any ammo. The sights are off. But look, look at what I paid for. Well, that's useless. You have a useless, high-quality stick, metal stick. It's not going to do anything. This thing is only useful if you make it do, if you can make it do what it was meant to do, hit the target. If you can't hit the target, it's useless. If you say, well, I, I just care about sound doctrine, that's like saying the same thing. I want, all I care about is step number one, when step number one is actually meant to lead to other things, to produce things. So we can't have that, that mentality. Again, I don't want us to say that sound doctrine and truth is the only thing that matters. What I'm saying is if you are really as concerned about the proclamation of sound doctrine, it will show that when you hear it, you imbibe it, and then you live it out in love toward one another. It will, it will issue forth. There are a lot of pulpits, and, and, and I, I wish I could articulate why this is the case, but there are a lot of pulpits around here that if we went to hear their sermons today, we would say everything he said was true. And everybody said, thank you. See you all next week. You all have a, have a good week. And they'll go, they'll go along their merry way. And you wonder, and they all live differently, many of them living what we would consider to be pretty openly immoral lives. And you wonder what, what's, what's, what gives, what is the, what's severing it? Why is the truth 
not shaping them. Either they're unconverted or they're just satisfied with, it went out. I just, I just want to hear the truth. There's probably more to it, but we don't want that. I don't want that. So examine your own emphasis. Have you, have you really considered this to be as important as it is? And then number two, pray then for the proper balance. Pray for the proper balance. You might say something like this. Oh God, I have not looked for your heart on this matter. I have until now seen only with clouded vision and I need to have my sight cleared in order to see things the way that you see them. You might be able to say, well, I've read John 17 and I noticed all of the inter-Trinitarian connections and I noticed the sovereignty of God and the election of His people. But did you ever see the heart of Christ being poured out for His people? That's there too, right? We didn't get to Acts chapter 2. But you might say, well, I've read Acts chapter 2 and now I've got a good defense of believer's baptism. That's there. But did you notice what happened to those people when they were converted? What was the first thing they did? We'll, we'll, We'll see it next week or the week after. Pray for the proper balance. Don't you know that the prayer that Christ prayed still echoes in the heavens? It continues effectual by His bodily presence there this very moment. Right this moment, we can read this prayer and it, as if, it is as if Christ in the heavens is saying right now, I do not ask for these only, but for all those who will believe in me through their word. He's praying for those at Covenant Bible Church that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you and going down the line. He's praying it. I think oftentimes when we pray prayers like open my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your law, what we mean is God teach me some new information. Rather than, Father, help me to see the wondrous things, things too wonderful for me. Help me to see the things beyond the attainments of my fallen nature, things which are found in Christ's heart that I can't even comprehend and I know that they're not in my part. Help me to see them and see where there is this great uh, difference between us so that I might come to you to be brought closer to His heart. Pray for the right balance. Ask the Lord to set you on the right path and give light to your feet in these matters. Now, I think that we can pray that kind of prayer in confidence because I see Christ praying the same kind of prayer. Right? We, we have confidence. When we're, when we're praying the same things Christ is praying, we're, we're on a, in, a, in a good place. So let's do that. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and, and ask Him to, to help us here.